We welcome you this morning to Bible class here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, and we also welcome our listening audience on KFUO as we continue our study of Hebrews. Now, we're beginning a section here in Hebrews that's kind of a, a change. Um, it, it's been very focused on theological matters, but now we see the author of Hebrews uh, talking to the people as a pastor would to people. Um, it's a warning, all right? It's a warning. But it's spoken in a pastoral manner as someone who cares about the people that are listening, the people that he is writing to. Um, and then in verse 7, chapter 7, it goes back to very definite theology with the uh, whole discussion of uh, the high priest Melchizedek. But in between, this is very personal to the people he's writing to. And so we're going to pick up at chapter 5, verse 11. Okay, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The author here is very concerned that the people of God that he is writing to have stopped listening to the Word of God. If you will recall when we started the study of Hebrews, we talked about the fact that we believe that this is actually a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon and the concern is the people that he is writing to were very much followers of Christ, but because of persecution and because of hard times, now they're considering leaving the faith and going back probably to Judaism because they don't want to face all this. They don't want to face it. They don't want to deal with it. Life was easier the way it was. And so the author is very concerned that they are actually thinking about leaving the faith. And so he tells them that they have become dull of hearing. I don't know of any pastor of any church anywhere that doesn't think at times that you're dull of hearing. Okay, you say it over and over again, nothing happens, you know. It's just part of it, okay? But that's what he is saying here. You're dull of hearing. For though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again 
the basic principles of the oracles of God. All right. So he's saying, from where you started, as long as it's been, now you should have grown up. You should have known more spiritual things. You should have known more of the things of God. And you're not there. You're not there because you're dull of hearing. Okay? So he is, this is, uh, this is an indictment. You are not far, as far along spiritually as you should be because you haven't been listening to God's word. And when he says the basic principles of the oracles of God, and he's going to talk about this in a few minutes, a few verses, he's talking about the basics, okay? The basics. Salvation. They haven't progressed beyond that. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. We all know that analogy. When babies are born, they need milk. And only after a certain time do they progress to where they can handle solid food. What he's saying to them is, you ought to be at the solid food stage and you're still at the milk stage, okay? You're not progressing. You are not progressing. You're like children, unskilled in the word of righteousness. There's only one way to grow in the faith, and that's through the word of God. When you're not in the word of God, you're not growing. Now, this is the same that's, uh, that's always talked about. If you're not growing, you're declining. If you're not growing, you're declining. And that can be in the church, that can be in business, that can be in personal life. If you're not growing, you're declining. Okay? There's no such thing as maintenance. Okay? Maintenance means a downward trend. You can't keep it the way it is. Growing or declining. And he's saying to them, at this point, you're declining. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Very powerful words, even for our age. How do we discern good from evil in our everyday lives? All that we hear, all that we see. The only way to discern these things is to know the Word of God and to be able to apply the Word of God to different things we hear and see. 
And it says discernment. We can discern what is right and wrong. We can discern what is good and evil. But not if you're in the Word. If you're not in the Word, you're not going to have the same kind of discernment as if you are. And we're talking here way beyond just church on Sunday. Okay? We're talking on daily involvement with the Word of God. Okay? Time spent daily with the Word of God. Now, we all know everybody's busy, and that's the way it is, and it's awfully easy to leave this out of our lives. But I would challenge you in this, and I found it to be true. When you are facing the worst day you could possibly have, if you start the day in the word and prayer, it's going to go a heck of a lot better. And the things you thought you could never get done, you will get done. And I've experienced that in my own life. Priorities first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the word of God has to be a part of life. Dennis. Well, well, first of all, um, we had a very good presentation down at the lake from, from Dr. David Schmidt, not Smith, Schmidt. Okay, we were colleagues at the seminary, but the fact is, and he talked about meditating on God's work. Now, I, it's, a bold, it's a bold thing to commit yourself to read the Bible in a year. It's a bold move. It's even bolder to forget about that and to sit there and think about three or four verses for 20 minutes. Different perspective. Quality versus quantity. That's, I don't think you can describe it because I think it's different for every person. But it certainly must include the word and prayer. The word and prayer. Reading the word. Let the word form your prayers. Okay? Read the word. Pray. If you're looking at a specific problem that day. Maybe you know a passage that deals with that. You look at that and you meditate on it. And, and it, it's not a time limit, okay? Not a time limit, but it's just beginning and acknowledging God. I need you today. And where you find him is in that word. 
to just start the day and say, well, I'll get this done. Wrong attitude. So I wouldn't be worried about how to do it. Just do something. Okay? Just do something. And as you do it more and more, you will come to the place that you like the way things are going. You like the way you're doing it. It seems to be helping. Continue that. But it's a growing process, just like everything else. Yes? Yes. Sometimes you are very intent on what you think should happen or you think the way things should be. And then you read the Word of God and it gives you pause. Maybe that's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, it's funny how Christians, the first thing that Christians do when trials come is pray that God will take the trials away. It's instantaneous. And yet if we read all of Scripture, we realize trials are part of what God uses to strengthen our faith. So maybe the prayer is not take this away from me, it is God. What do you want me to learn through this? What do you want me to learn? What are you trying to teach me through this trial? Because we usually say, well, God, you know, I'm trying to do my best. I go to church every Sunday. I read your word. Why me? Don't ever say that. Because no matter how good you are, you still deserve the worst. God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to learn through this trial? Give me the strength to go through it. but teach me your ways through this. What did we say just the other week? Christ learned obedience through suffering. Suffering. So, word and prayer, so that we can grow to discern good from evil. We have to be in the Word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Okay? In other words, we're going to leave the basics. He's basically saying, okay, we're going to leave the basics and we're moving on. We're moving on. Okay? And then he lists the basics. Not laying again a foundation. See, the the basics are the foundation. We're not going there, but here he lists the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This is salvation. 
We repent trying to save ourselves. We repent of our sins. And our faith is turned toward God. Okay? Salvation. And of instruction about washings, this has instruction about washings and the laying on of hands are instructions about baptism. The resurrection of the dead, okay, the final resurrection, the final promise, and eternal salvation, okay? And this we will do if God permits. Now that's the easy part, folks. The next verses, it is one of the most difficult passages in not only Hebrews, but in the New Testament. Now let me lay a little groundwork here. We talk often about the canon. The canon is the books, are the books of the Bible. Okay? Remember the canon. Um, we know that the Catholic Church has more books. But the Christian canon is not based around the fact that some guys sat down and decided what should be in the Bible. It was basically decided because these books forced themselves on the church. Now, what do I mean by that? First of all, that they had a pretty good idea who wrote them, and that they had contact with the apostles, eyewitnesses, etc. Number two, that the book does not contain anything that contradicts sound Christian doctrine. The third thing in canonicity is that these books were read throughout the Christian world. So when the book of Romans was read in Rome and in Turkey and in Jerusalem and in Egypt, and it was accepted by all those people. This is the word of God. That's what I mean by these things emerging as the obvious word of God. Now we have a lot of uh, extra biblical, we call them sources, which are historians like Eusebius that tell us so-and-so wrote this book. We don't worry so much about the Old Testament because of this. Jesus quotes from most of the books of the Old Testament and he says, this is the word of the Lord and that ends the discussion. When Jesus says it, it's over. But the New Testament, all right. So in the New Testament, there are two categories of books the homo-legomena and the anti-legomena. The homo-legomena are those that we are just sure because we know the authors. Does not contradict, contradict any 
basic doctrine and is universally accepted. The anti-legomena, there are questions. Now, what are the books of the anti-legomena? James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation. Now, why Hebrews? Because we don't know the author. The other reason that sometimes it was questioned is because of the verse we're about to read. So, let's go. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Okay? In other words, you take a person who is a true believer in Jesus Christ, who believes, who has the Holy Spirit, who knows the things of God, and falls away from it, it's impossible to bring them back. Now, before you go crazy, we're going to read another verse. We're going to read from the book of James. Last chapter, verse 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, that seems to say exactly the opposite of what we read in Hebrews. Now, some principles here. What we're talking about is perseverance in the faith throughout your earthly life. And there are two things that have to be said about perseverance. Number one, if you persevere throughout your earthly life and when you die or when Christ comes again and you inherit eternal life, who gets the credit for your perseverance? Not you. God did it. God is the one who worked in you, 
who preserved you in the faith through trial and tribulation and brought you to eternal life. It is the work of God. Point number two. If you don't persevere and you don't reach eternal life, it's not God's fault, it's yours. It's not God's fault, it's yours. Because God wants you to persevere. But you, by your own stubborn, sinful will, can turn from the faith. Now, that gets us into this, but there's two things here. From the sound of Hebrews, anybody that falls away can't come back. But, according to James, they can come back. So what's the distinction? What is the distinction? What James is saying is true. But to get the full import of what Hebrews is saying, we have to read further. Verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now this is the new part. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This verse is painting a much starker picture. This is the picture of one who falls away. And it's not, it's more than just falling away. They re-crucify Christ and they say it means nothing. They hold him up for contempt. They don't believe in him and they don't believe that through his death they are pardoned. They don't want his forgiveness. They don't even believe it exists. And they persist in this the rest of their lives. That's what we're dealing with here. The Word of God is very powerful. Can it bring someone back? Yes, that's what James is saying. But what Hebrews is saying is, when you keep this mindset and hold Christ up to contempt and want to have nothing to do him with him throughout your life, that's what we're talking about here. They can't be brought back. What we're talking about here is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's just Hebrews is putting it in different terms. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's not a sin. What's a sin is you're rejecting his work. 
The work of the Holy Spirit is trying to convince people to believe in Jesus Christ. The saying answer the Holy Spirit is, I'm not going to believe in Jesus Christ, come what may. In fact, I want nothing to do. That's what Hebrews is talking about. That's what the sin of the Holy Spirit is, but it's lifelong. You die in that. Okay. And that's why it's called unforgivable sin, because it's the only, un all other sins are forgivable. But that is not. Rejecting Christ for the rest of your life is not. Okay. That's what he's talking about here. And everybody always says, well, have I done that? Well, if you had done that, you wouldn't be sitting in Bible class. Okay? Wouldn't be sitting in Bible class and coming to church. So that's what we're talking about here. A true rejection of everything that God is trying to work in your life. Now, he gives an example. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Now, let me say this also. The author of Hebrews is not accusing anybody that they've done this. The author of Hebrews is just writing it as a warning. This can happen. This can happen. You want nothing to do with the Word of God. You don't listen to the Word of God. You say, I'm not going to believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going back to Judaism. This can happen to you. If you turn from the Christian faith, this can happen to you. That's what he's saying. But he doesn't accuse anybody of having done it. Neither does Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talks about the sin against the Holy Spirit to the Pharisees, but he does not accuse anybody of doing it, of being guilty of it. Okay? All right. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. This is how we know he's not accusing anybody in the audience of having done this. We're looking for better things. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, your works are showing forth that you still have faith. Okay? That's what he's saying. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's trying to encourage them. He's saying, there are signs of faith among you, the way you love and care for one another. Your earnestness. He's trying to encourage them to continue growing in the faith. To continue growing in the faith. And not to go the route of turning away from the faith. Okay? So, what is he naturally going to talk about? That which is is for certain. And so he talks about the promises of God. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And then it says, um, and this, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, what is God going to swear by? There's nothing greater than God. So he swears by himself. So when he made the promise to Abraham, he swore that he would be blessed and multiply. He swore. Absolute truth. Now what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is, God has made you promises. And you can be absolutely assured of them. Okay? And it is because God made those promises, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He waited for years. He waited for years for Sarah to have a child. The promise was made years before, but he waited patiently and obtained the promise. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And so by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This guy would flunk English. Nobody writes sentences that long, okay? Would flunk English. Okay, so what's he saying here? God wanted to show that these promises were absolute truth. 
He wanted to show Abraham this is going to happen. So he not only made the promise, he swore, he took an oath that the promise was sure. Okay? And so when it says down there, when it says, um, so that by two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? The promise and the oath. They won't change. The promises of God won't change. The oath of God will not change. Okay? And that's why we always teach the immutability of God. God does not change. If God changes, we have a problem. You know, you die and go to heaven. Uh, well, I believed in your son. You know, that was great yesterday, but I've changed my mind. Okay? God does not change. So his promise is sure and his oath are sure. He, he was trying to show Abraham absolutely that the promise was true. And it says... It's impossible for God to lie. Who's the one that tells the lie? What does Jesus say about Satan? The father of lies. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Now he's talking to the people don't give up the Christian faith. Be like Abraham and firmly hold on to the promise and the oath of God. They're unchangeable, they're sure. Because they're unchangeable and because they're sure, that strong encouragement that gives us hope Hope in the Bible means something very different than we use it in English. I hope the sun shines tomorrow. It's a wish. In the Bible, hope is certainty. Okay? The blessed hope of eternal life means it's going to happen. Hope is certainty. All right? So, hold on to the promise and the oath of God. He's encouraging you. He's giving you hope, the certainty that this is going to come about. You're going to inherit eternal life. Do not abandon the faith. Do not abandon the faith. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is where you get the, the whole Christian imagery. Uh, hope is pictured as an anchor. This is where it comes from. Okay? This is where it comes from. 
But notice what it says. Where is this hope grounded? Enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf. Okay, we can be confident, we can have this hope, not based on ourselves, but based on the fact that God has kept his promise, has sent a Savior, and that Savior has gone before us. The curtain has been torn in two. We can now come to God because our sins are forgiven and we have eternal life. That is the hope we have, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, so he is now our high priest. We talk about Jesus being our prophet, priest, and king. He is our high priest. One of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is the high priest. Okay? No more human high priests like Aaron. No more sinful high priests. We now have a holy, perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, that brings us to the next section, which is um, on who is Melchizedek. All right? Who is Melchizedek? Now, gird up your loins. This is hard. And we're not going to get into that starting today. But the fact is that Melchizedek is only mentioned in about three places in the Bible. Genesis 14, where he meets Abraham. Psalm 110, and here in Hebrews. Next week, we are going to study in depth Melchizedek. This has always been the question. Was Melchizedek who met with Abraham, the pre-incarnate son of God, or was he a mysterious figure? And we'll try to figure that out next week. Okay? Because it's been argued for a long time, there are some passages that seem to give us hints. We're going to read Genesis, then we'll look at Hebrews. And we'll talk about, you know, when a guy named Smith, I'd like to be named Melchizedek. Okay? Enough of this Smith stuff. That's a name. Okay? And it means king of righteousness. So, um, we'll talk about that next week. Okay, questions. Okay, we're supposed to use this thing. Have at it. Uh, I get what you were talking about early in chapter 6 about the falling away thing. Yes. But 
what bothers me a little bit is the way it starts out saying moving on from uh, the basic teachings, and he lists those, which are very important, to maturity, uh, which is the same word that they used about Christ being perfect. Yeah. Uh, so as a pastor, what are you going for there? I mean, uh, we certainly don't want to move away from the basics of theology. Yeah, uh, basically he's, I, I'd look at it like this. He's not going to move away from the basics. He wants them to go deeper, but before they go deeper, he's going to let them have it one more time with the threat about the sin against the Holy Spirit before he gets into the other things. One last shot. That's the way I'd look at it. Okay. That's the way I'd look at it. All right, we got others back here. Okay. What's the difference between a promise and a covenant? Nothing. What's the difference between a promise and a covenant? Well, you can, no, well, I would say this. When God makes us a promise, then um, it's by grace. When God, when it says covenant, Sometimes it's one, sometimes the other, you know. This is my blood of the new covenant. That's a one-sided thing. God is giving us grace. But if we look in the Old Testament, he made them the promise that they're saved by faith, but their end of the covenant was then to obey his word. So you have to look at the context and how it's used and how it's used. Other questions? Comments? Yes? So back to Bud's question, these, these things always concern me, and I once had a pastor kind of all boil this down to the gospel always trumps the law. You know him. And I was wondering, is, can, can we apply that in this case? Well, the, the fact is, um, God can work faith in anyone. Look at the Apostle Paul. The greatest persecutor of the church becomes the greatest advocate of the church. But I'm not sure we want to pit the law and the gospel, which are God's word, versus human will, which is sinful. So basically, the human will is sinful. Comes to faith through the power of God, there is forgiveness. Refuses to come to faith, then it's under the law. So I wouldn't say gospel trumps law. I would say that the gospel, the law is fulfilled by Jesus Christ for every person because of his perfect life. And so that perfection is declared ours, okay? Declared ours. That's gospel. Okay. 
But the law and gospel are certainly different. But it's very specific in Scripture. Nobody's too sinful to be saved. The gospel is the power of God and to salvation to everyone who believes. It is powerful. Yeah. God only wants to apply the law if he has to. His desire is to apply the gospel to everyone. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Yes. I'd have to look. I'd have to look at that. I'd have to look at that. Um, that when he spoke the words about the the sin against the Holy Spirit to the Pharisees, you know, as far as they were concerned, they'd never been in the faith. Okay, they'd never been in the faith. So I'll look at that and see see what it is. Yes, one more. Well, it is. Um, the, the principle is, in every sermon, there needs to be law and gospel, but the gospel needs to predominate. There always needs to be more gospel than law. Uh, some law is more hard-hitting. It, it depends on the person. You may hear the law is very hard-hitting to you, and it may not be that hard-hitting to another person. God applies the word through the Holy Spirit to each heart. Okay? Pastor can't do that. We have to leave that to God. But the gospel always has to predominate because that's the word gospel, that's the word God wants you to get. He doesn't want you under the law, he wants you under the gospel. And so you always have to preach so that the gospel no matter what you preach against, the gospel is greater than that. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. There is life. That's why you never preach a sermon and preach all gospel, and at the end, let them have it. Because the gospel has to be God's final. It is God's final word. It is God's final word. All right, we got to close. We'll do Melchizedek next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.